Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Julia Gillard, and I believe in a world of gender equality. I once gave a speech calling out sexism and misogyny and listing what offended me. Today, I'm adding to that list. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. That's spurred me on. And today I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, which is headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want to create the space for women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. In each episode, I will put a spotlight on women leaders from all walks of life. By celebrating their stories and learning the lessons from their lives, I hope we will all gain insights about what needs to be done so more women get to lead. My guest on this episode is Kathy Lett, Australian author and legend. Kathy, great to be well, talking I like to that. you. that. That's a nice intro. <laughs> a good you. intro. Now, Kathy, you left school at 16 yep. and co-wrote with a friend, Puberty Blues, mm-hmm. a coming-of-age story with a strong feminist theme. Mm-hmm. Did you identify yourself as a feminist at 16? <gasps> no. I mean, the reason I wrote Puberty Blues was that we girls thought we were just a life support system to a pair of breasts. We were definitely second-class citizens. But you have no objectivity at that age, do you? You think that's normal, that's the way all girls are treated. Jermaine Greer was rhyming slang for beer. Right. You know, you go to the pub and they go, oh, your turn to get the germs or whatever. So I had no idea that, that life didn't have to be like that for women. But gradually started to write about the fact that the girls couldn't surf. We had to sit on the beach and fold the towel and fetch the chico roll and massage the ego. And, you know, as proof of how sexist these guys were, these surfy boys in Sydney, they used to get us to cut their names out in paper, sticky tape them on our stomachs and then sunbake. No. So we'd get a tan tattoo in the shape of their name. So if ever I get cancer, I'll have a melanoma called Bruce. <laughs> I'll have to have like a brusette to me to get rid of it, yeah. <laughs> but it was really a surprise when that book became a cult book overnight because it sort of, I went from obscurity to, to overwrite notoriety in, in a heartbeat. But it's also what kick-started my feminism, for sure. And what inspired you to write as opposed mm. to just talk about those experiences, think about those experiences, or as many girls would have done, just live through those experiences? Why write? I write because it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be a permanent member of Couch Canyon, you know, <laughs> making some shrink laugh, whereas instead I can put it down on paper. And I always try, all my books are very feminist, but I always try and disarm with charm because I think if you can make the reader laugh, 
you're much more likely to get them to relax into your your message. In my case, it's always a feminist message. Yeah. And so the growth of your feminist sort of consciousness then. So yeah. you wrote this book. Are you writing more books? You were writing a newspaper column, all as a very young woman. I mean, in some ways, people would say, well, there were no barriers in her way. She got published young. She had a newspaper column young. Mm -hmm. But how were you experiencing it? The sexism was rife. But we just had to deal with it in in a bolshy sort of way. I mean, you had to strap on your bulletproof bra and just get out there. I'll give you a typical example of the sexism we endured when I was a young woman. I already had a book out, already had a newspaper column, and I went then for a job at a television station in Sydney. This was my job interview. There was a whole group of very high-powered television executives sitting opposite me, five or six men, and one of them slapped $10 on the table and said to me, I bet I can make your tits move without touching them. And I just went, oh, yeah, well, okay, whatever. He leant over, mauled my breasts and said, ha-ha, you won, there's the $10. And I immediately said, I bet you $20 I can make your balls move without touching them and kicked him between the legs. (laughs) I mean, I got the job, but what kind of a job interview is that? And today you'd have a sexual harassment suit, for sure. But in those days, no, you just had to kind of deal with it. Well, you know, you know what it was like. You had to get out there and scrum. You had to be a front row forward feminist, you know, a bit of a ball kicker. And clearly humour was your defence mechanism then. And has that always been the case? You disarm with the humour or engage with the humour? Well, I always think men are more physically strong, of course, but women are more verbally dexterous. We use, on average, about 350 more words in our daily vocabulary. So, you know, I call it the black belt in tongue foo. (laughs) And if you can give a bit of quiplash and make other people laugh at the man who's bullying you or trying to belittle you, you take away his power. Obviously, it can be dangerous if it's just a one-on-one situation because he could try and hit you. But if you're in a group, it's the most effective weapon is to just kneecap him comedically and take away that that power he has over you. Yeah, so I, whenever I go to schools and give talks to young women, I always say to them, if you're going out, you are underdressed without a couple of one-liners tucked up your trouser leg. And I always give them four or five lines they can kind of memorise that can just decimate a bloke at, you know, five paces. So, yeah, very important. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. And Well, you did it in Parliament, the way you took down Tony Abbott. That was genius. That was a black belt in tongue. <laughs> Less of the humour, perhaps, other than the, the line about him looking at his watch. Less of the humour. Yeah. But uh, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Your books are noted for their feminist content, for their humour, you pack a punch. Where does the inspiration for all of that come from and mm. how much has your feminist thinking fed into it? Well, I do all my research in a scientific, in-depth fashion over cocktails with girlfriends. Right. And that's yeah. where I get all my material. So really, I just write down the way women talk when there's no men around because it's a great male myth that women aren't funny. And I've heard this in every country I've been on book tour in the world. I'm published in 18 languages, so I've been to a lot of places. And invariably, some male journalists will say to me, oh, you know, you feminists say that you write funny novels. But women just aren't that funny. And I think, why do some men persist in saying this? I think they're just terrified what it is we're being funny about. Mm. I think they presume we spend the entire time talking about the length of their members, which... It's not true because we also talk about the width, you know, which after childbirth is so much more important. But it's not just me imagining that women are funny because when you go on a girls' night out, don't you have to be hospitalised from hilarity? I've been out with you. We're rolling around on the floor. We, we, we can't even eat our dessert. We're laughing so much and that's drastic. 
<laughs> but it's also backed up by anthropologists who say women in all cultures on the planet laugh more often than men, especially in all female groups. And I think, why is that? If you can have a good laugh with your human wonder bras, and I think women are each other's human wonder bras, uplifting, supportive, making each other look bigger and better. If you can have a laugh with them, it takes the sting out of the difficulties of life, doesn't it? And I think you wouldn't get through your darker days without a good laugh with your girlfriends. And women have a lot of darker days because generally speaking, we are the carers, aren't we? We care for our aged relatives, our fragile friends, our sick siblings. We take care of our children's needs, some of which are special. I have a son with autism. So I just think it's how we strap a giant shock absorber to our brain to cope with life is to be able to laugh and let go with our friends. So it is a survival mechanism for women. I think there's a difference between male and female humour. My male friends are very funny, but they tend to sort of tell set jokes. You know, right. Whereas my women friends, our humour is more confessional, cathartic, anecdotal, and we do strip off to our emotional undies in about 6.3 <laughs> seconds, and it's a psychological striptease that reveals all, and, it, and it's hilarious. We've certainly had some amazing nights out, I can yeah. verify that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you referred to your children, and of course you are the mother of a son and a daughter, and you've written about your son's special needs, yeah. his autism. Mm -hmm. Many women face the dilemma of how do I juggle family and career, mm. and we know from the research that women pay a penalty in their careers because disproportionately mm -hmm. they're the ones that do the caring. Yeah. With your son in particular and mm. his special needs, how have you managed all of that? What impact has it had? Well, I do think women juggle so much, working mothers juggle so much, we could be in the Cirque du Soleil. And men are just not helping enough either. Even though 50, women make up 50% of the workforce, we're still doing, I reckon, 99.9% .9 of all the housework and all the childcare. And I used to have this argument with my own husband saying, you've got to help me more around the house. And he'd be like, well, I'd like to help, but I'm a man and I can't multitask. <laughs> have you ever heard a bloke saying that? I Good mean, excuse. Yeah, not. It, it's a biological cop-out because no man would have any trouble multitasking at, say, an orgy. He'd have no trouble at that time. He'd all be <laughs> tweaking and twirling and thrusting, so that doesn't wash. I always say to men, too, it's in their interest to help us more around the, the house. I think they'd get more sex if they help more around the house because... When I talk to my girlfriends, my working mother girlfriends, clearly they're just not having sex with their partners because they're, well, they're resentful, but they're also exhausted. As you say, they've come home after a full day at work, they've cooked the dinner, they've, you know, found the lost sports kit, they've done the washing, they've done the ironing, they've done the teeth cleaning, nagging, they've read all the bedtime stories, they've defrosted the chops, put the cat out. By the time they get into bed, the one thing they're fantasising about is sleep and then they get the hand and they're like, oh no, not the hand. Men make horror movies called The Blob and The Thing. <laughs> Women would make the hand. <laughs> and you think, here's this guy, he hasn't talked to me all day or helped me around the house and he thinks I'm in the mood for love. <laughs> But he hasn't noticed, you know, he's just prodding away at your clitoris as though it's an elevator button, he's running late for a meeting. I'm like, take the stairs. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, it is in their interest in every single way to help us more around the house. The Daily Mirror has said about you, forget all the pretenders to the chick lit crown, the tiara belongs to Cathy Lett and she's got the novels to prove <laughs> oh. it. Now, do you think you write chick lit? I hate that term. Is chick lit a thing? With a Is passion. Is it still a thing? No, and it's a, it was always a horrible term. Men who write first-person funny contemporary fiction get compared to Chekhov, you know, mm. people like Nick Hornby, and we get chick lit. He gets Chekhovian lit and we get chick lit. It's just so insulting and demeaning as usual. I wouldn't mind clit lit. I mean, I do write a lot about the clitorati. <laughs> You know, the feminists, <laughs> we feminists, that's all right. But chiclet, isn't that just pathetic? And even in the publishing industry, 
female writers are given the pink cover with the cupcake on it, even though you might be writing about really serious issues in, a, in a, an accessible and humorous way. It's a, just a way of putting you back in your box all the time. So, yeah, I really resent that term with a passion. And do you think it's changing? I mean, across your career, has it got better for women, stayed the same, got worse? How are you seeing that? Well, what's happening in the literary world now is that it, misery lit is in. So if, as long as you're writing about something to make people unhappy, that's sort of top of the bestseller list now. But I don't think that reflects the women's lives that I know. It's got to be a bit of a mix. And also, I think it's a writer's job to lift your reader up a little bit and give them something to alleviate all the, all the difficulties and miseries we go through. I think books should be prescribed by doctors, like as literary penicillin. You know, if you're feeling miserable, what could be better than reading a funny female comic author? You know, that would just be better than a tranquilizer. Just don't call it chick lit. <laughs> don't call it chick lit, no. You know what I mean, though. Oh, I do. Oh. I do, absolutely. I, I do think that's a term to dismiss yeah. and put women's literature in a track that's treated less seriously. Your literature, though, with all of that, the uplifting, the women looking after mm -hmm. women, it does help women learn about feminism in a fun way. Do you think about that consciously as you write? I mean, can we teach feminism through humorous, wonderful, engaging novels? I think absolutely, because it's a very intimate contract with your reader. All you want to do as a, as a writer is help other women know they're not alone. Because I remember when I wrote Mad Cows, I wanted to take the idea that motherhood was the ultimate fulfilment for a female, that great big sacred cow, and whack it on the Barbie. Because it's really hard yakka, motherhood. I mean, people used to say to me all the time, oh. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Oh, isn't the time going so quickly? And I think, no, it's going really, really slowly. Some days I was so bored doing creative things with Play-Doh, I could see my plants engaging in photosynthesis, right? <laughs> One day I grew a yeast infection as a change of pace. And every day I was tempted to put the kids under the sink and the lethal household substances within my own reach. <laughs> but I kept meeting these other mothers who just sort of seemed being so perfect. So when I wrote Mad Cows, I thought maybe I'm the only mother who doesn't cope all the time. I don't think that now. I think any mother who says she copes all the time is either lying or taking a lot of drugs. <laughs> and that book did go on to be the biggest international success of my career. So I was right to follow my instincts. And I don't think women pretend anymore to be perfect mothers. And I think that book did kickstart a whole genre, which we now call mummy lit. But I do think a lot of women still pretend to have perfect marriages. I mean, just look at Instagram. Mm. And that's just a whole other pressure on women to sort of live up to this idea of the perfect marriage. I think perfect marriages are like orgasms. A lot of them are faked. And I don't think women should perpetuate that myth. When I write about marriage, which I've also written a lot about, I always try and point out to women that marriage suits men much more than it suits women. Married men live longer than single men, have less heart disease and mental problems, whereas single women live longer than married women, have less heart disease and mental problems. So marriage statistics are very low in the West. They're sort of lower than Kim Kardashian's bikini line. And I think it's women getting PMT, pre-monogamy tension. Well, you've got pre-monogamy tension, haven't you? Yes, you don't have... Never married. No, you haven't felt the need to knot your nuptials and you're very, very wise in my view. I mean, love prepares you 
you for marriage the way needlepoint prepares you for round-the-world solo yachting. So <laughs> just keep the love alive, Julia. I think you're on the right track. On the right track there. I mean, the way we connect now, it has given rise to yeah. the sharing of yeah. some of the more difficult parts of being a woman and I think people are more honest about the challenges of motherhood now but you are right it's also got that mm -hmm. duality of everybody else looks like they're having a perfect life yeah. and why doesn't my home look like that why don't I look like that yeah. mm -hmm. how do you think that might be impacting on younger women we didn't grow oh. up with that pressure we grew up with the pressures you wrote about in mm -hmm. puberty blues mm -hmm. but how do you think it would be hitting women, oh, I think, young girls? Today? Yeah, I think it must be unbearable. When we were young girls, yes, skinniness was in us and all of that, but you could retreat. You had some time where there, you were just with your family and you're uncontactable and you could restore yourself and revive, but now you're on available 24-7 to criticism. I mean, I just think that must be absolutely exhausting. And the pressure on women to be thin now too. Mm. I mean, you can see the one cup of skimmed air they've had all week. I think it must be just so impossibly hard for young women now. And I just think we should turn off our social media, for starters. What's interesting about, you know, the puberty blues when I wrote that book, you would think that that would almost be an historical document. But when they just did this 20-hour TV series, the main demographic who watched that show were still teenagers because it was still so relevant to them. And I thought, actually, what has really changed? When I was growing up as a surfy girl, you know, the double standards about sexuality, for example, were so prevalent. A guy who was sexually active was a love god, a stud god. muffin, a Romeo Lothario, a spunk rat. A woman with the same sexual appetites, a slut, a tart, a tramp, a mole. And I don't think that's really changed. You know, men still expect you to be so virginal. The guy's like, oh, darling, darling, am I the first man to make love to you? To which the woman replies, of course. I don't know why you men keep asking the same silly question. <laughs> but, you know, it hasn't really changed. So I think for young women, I mean, the pressures are as difficult as they were when I was young, but just exacerbated by the constant myopic glare of social media. And yet we can use social media to help feminism. Yes. I mean, Me Too's been a fantastic and example up, of that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Time's Up. Mm. Uh, do you think they're going to be change agents in our world? Can you see that making a big difference in industries like the literary industry, which mm. presumably still has mm. sexual harassment as part of the way in which those with power, those mm. who can get you published, can treat young mm. female authors? Yes, and people keep saying to me, oh, you know, Me Too's gone too far. And I'm like, it hasn't even gone far enough. Those top-order predators who are lying on top of the rock, they've slithered under the rock, but they're still absolutely there in publishing and every other industry. This is just the beginning. And I think until we get equal pay, I mean, can you believe it? A hundred years since Emily Pankhurst tied herself to the ratings, we still don't have equal pay. We're still getting concussion hitting our head on the glass ceiling and we're supposed to clean it while we're up there. We've got a pussy grabber as a president. We've got Harvey Weinstein type predators in every workplace. I think any woman who doesn't call herself a feminist has kept her wonder bra and burnt her brains because we still have a long way to go. And until we get equal pay, I think we can comedically kneecap men as often as we like and as often as possible. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, keep kicking those balls, girls. <laughs> the feminism in your literature, I think, has taught people and inspired, but you've also actually wrestled with individual issues. You've told, for example, the experience of women being raped in a very graphic yeah. way and then how they're treated by the mm. system. Do you think literature can help inspire that kind of very particular change? Yeah. Let's treat victims of sexual assault 
in a more respectful way than they have been in the past. Definitely, because the power of literature is that the reader is emoting with the character. You're not just reading a dry, you know, statement of facts. You're actually in the character's mind and feeling their emotions. So, of course, you're much more likely to be sympathetic and compassionate towards that person. Think of how Dickens helped change the world because readers could actually imagine the plight of working class people, you know, these poor kids. So it's the same with imagining how women are treated. Male readers can get inside a woman's head for the first time and imagine how belittling and degrading and brutal the world can be. So yeah, it's a very, very powerful tool. Looking at today's world, there's plenty to get depressed about, and you've mentioned a few of them. Uh, <laughs> current leadership in countries around the world, for example. Yeah. Uh, but what inspires you? Who do you see? What do you see that gives you optimism for the future? We're obviously wanting to see rapid change for women. Yeah. Do you have that sense that we'll get there? Well, I've got you. You inspire me. <laughs> Thank you. You know, and our New Zealand Prime Minister inspires me and the female Prime Minister who ran Iceland and, and changed Iceland after the financial crash. If we could just get more women at the helm. I was thinking, how, you know how um, sometimes people get a guest edit of a magazine? I think, why can't we have a guest edit of the world where just let women take over the world, just, just even for six months? We can't do a worse job than the boys have done. Just see what we could do if for once we had a little bit bit of power. So yeah, the more women there are in public life, the better it's going to be because they will make change. I love that idea, a guest edit of the, the world. world. <laughs> yeah. Now I can't move to other questions without just stopping and saying, you're a professional writer, you know the industry well, what should we be reading apart from Cathy Lett novels? <laughs> As I left school at 16, the only examination I've ever passed is my cervical smear test. I'm an autodidact, means self-taught, obviously it's a word I taught myself, Julia. I am still working through the whole literary canon of the women writers. I'm reading Virginia Woolf and I'm reading George Eliot and I'm reading Simone de Beauvoir and Edith Sitwell and all those wonderful writers. But actually there's a whole group of literary lionesses. What's interesting about them is that they didn't have children. Not one of those authors had babies, right up to Germaine Greer and Gloria Steinem, because books and babies just did not go together. They gave birth to books rather than babies. So I think any mother who just finishes a novel should get the Booker Prize, just because she actually <laughs> finished that goddamn thing. You know, because all the male authors I know, they go up to their attic and their wives bring them up little sandwiches and they go, shh, daddy's working, genius, genius. And as a female writer, if you get an hour off between, you know, rescuing the babysitter from between the teeth of your feral teenage son and, you know, <laughs> bailing the other one out of prison or whatever, you write in that one hour. <laughs> so uh, I just think, yeah, it's so much harder for us. But you end up with a life rich with experiences to put into that one well, hour of writing. That's absolutely <laughs> true. So, you know, remember Cyril Connolly said the pram in the hall is the enemy of promise. But actually, it's given me a lot of material yeah. over the years. And there's still a lot of taboo subjects to write about. I mean, even the menopause. Women still don't talk about the menopause, for example. That's supposed to be something that's kept secret. That's another taboo we need to bust, which I am hope to bust in a few novels soon. Women have got so much we could whinge about, but we don't, do we? We don't whinge. I think, you know, laugh and the world laughs with you, cry and you get salt in your shampers, which we don't want. But even being the butt of God's biological joke, you think of all the things women have to go through from when you first get your periods and you're taken hostage once a month and then there's pregnancy where everything swells to sumo wrestler proportions in there's childbirth, where you stretch your birth canal, the customary, like five kilometres. Then there's mastitis, and then the, there's the menopause, and then just when everything goes quiet, do you know what happens? 
what? You grow a beard. How can that be fair? <laughs> can you see my chin? There's a macrame hanging basket arrangement happening here. I'm like, oh my. Now, now this. I can't see anything. <laughs> oh, well I said. Can't see anything. Well said. <laughs> Good answer. Now, I'm going to move us to the big question section. These are questions that I ask every guest in the publishing industry. Fun fact, or is it a fun fact? Michelle Obama was the first woman in over a decade mm. to have the number one best-selling book over Christmas. Wow. Really? In over a decade? In over a decade. That's depressing because women read more books than men as well. So why aren't we supporting our female writers? Yeah, we love her, but still. Still, more women at the top of mm -hmm. those best-selling lists. Because men don't got. read books by women. You know that, don't they? All the research shows that men only read books by men. Women read books from both. But I think we should just sort of girl-cot the male <laughs> authors and still they start reading us. <laughs> A girl-cot of male authors. I'm calling for it right here, right now. You heard it first on this podcast. <laughs> uh, you've described an amazing incident in your first interview for TV, but what's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Was it that, being literally having your body handled in a TV interview, or can oh. you think of other incidents? Oh, there's just been so many. Where to start? As soon as you become a mother, you get seated down table at dinner parties. People take 100 IQ points off you, that kind of thing. I think the only way mums, especially stay-at-home mums, can sort of get more respect is to change their name from stay-at-home mum to domestic engineer or the president of in-home pedagogy. <laughs> you know, just make yourself sound more damn important because you are. So it's just everyday misogyny that wears you down. The cumulative effect. The cumulative effect, yeah. Now, if you uh, had all power could change anything, what would you change overnight for women in the world? Equal pay. There's only one place size does count. Bank balance. Bank balance. And that brings us beautifully to my last question. Virginia Woolf, who you've been reading, says, a woman must have money if she is to write fiction. Kathy Lett says. <laughs> That's, that is absolutely true. Just to keep you in champagne and lamingtons. <laughs> <laughs> the inspiration for all writing. That's right. Uh, to, to the non-Australians, you're going to have to just Google <laughs> what a lamington is. Uh, Kathy Lett, thank you for being my guest on oh, a podcast of one's own. Great to have some girl talk with you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm -hmm.